Tonight on Farage, the Tory Sleesborough rumbles on, Starmer goes on the attack. We're asking the question, should MPs be allowed to have second jobs? And a race row in cricket, a really big one. Not in Yorkshire, this time it's in India. And joining me on Talking Pines, a former right-hand man to Prime Minister Tony Blair, John McTernan. Well, last week, politics was dominated by the Owen Patterson row, and two words, a phrase I thought had disappeared back into the dim and distant past, is back! It's Tory Slees! It's been all over the newspapers, including Conservative supporting newspapers. And on the back of that today, a big debate in Parliament. Uh, and really the question is quite simple. Should members of Parliament be allowed to have other sources of income? Should members of Parliament be allowed to have other jobs? Because that is what's at the heart of the Owen Paterson row. Now, the rules are very clear. MPs are allowed other jobs, other sources of income, provided they do not lobby government on behalf of those individuals or those companies. They're the rules. They've been the rules forever. Uh, but Owen Paterson is seen to have breached them. But it's now leading to a bigger debate about whether MPs should be allowed at all to have second jobs. Darren McCaffrey, our political editor, you followed this debate this afternoon. Keir Starmer, well, he's not Tony Blair. I mean, Tony Blair was flattening the Conservatives in the 1990s on sleaze. Um, but not a bad day for but, him. Yeah, certainly making an impact. And given, you know, where, as you say, Keir Starmer necessarily hasn't had the impact in the past, I think today in Parliament he certainly did to a degree. Uh, we just saw the clip there, didn't we, uh, during the news where yeah. he talked about how uh, this was, or the Conservatives were giving a green light to corruption uh, and that the government wants to weaken the system by kind of changing the rules. That's the main allegation, of course, uh, from the Labour Party. Will his kind of Tory sleaze, will it stick? Well, that's going to be a question that's going to play out in politics, isn't it, in the weeks and months to come. Um, but I do think this is resonating to a degree. We're always starting to see a slight shift in the polls. We know that MPs have been written to by uh, constituents about this. And we also know, of course, lots of Conservative MPs last week were not terribly happy about having to walk through uh, that lobby on behalf of the government when they really didn't want to, when they knew, having read that report, which maybe some in Downing Street did not, that Owen Paterson essentially did do uh, wrong and had been found to do uh, wrong. Now, this debate, three hours long, it's just wrapped up, actually, in the last yeah. couple of minutes in the Commons. I think a few interesting things. First of all, we also heard from Roberto Costa. Now, he's a Conservative MP. And he was, in many ways, trying to make the argument for why the system needs to change. Aside from the Owen Paterson case, it, this is in terms of when an MP is investigated and found guilty, there is no appeals process. And this was... I suppose the argument that Owen Paterson did have that did have which some is a, virtue, which is a reasonable and fair which, argument uh, for any form of justice. Indeed, and he also points out that on that committee there were 14 people, seven lay people, seven MPs, but none of them got any judicial experience. And in many ways, of course, you know, it is a job being an MP, but there is more to it than that. And they're saying there's not the expertise to properly investigate these uh, cases. Also, interestingly, we did hear from Stephen Barclay. Now, Stephen Barclay went further than the Prime Minister did today in that hospital in uh, Hexham in Northumberland, in which he did apologise uh, for what went on uh, last week. He was sat, interestingly, next to Jacob Meese-Rogg and to Mark Spencer, Mark Spencer's the chief whip, whip, who looked pretty glum, it must be said, during all of this. Uh, they're seen as some of the key characters who were pushing the Patterson agenda within uh, Number 10. Also very interesting, of course, the Prime Minister himself 
wasn't there, which I think some Conservative MPs were pretty angry with. They thought oh, no previous engagement. Well, he should run to this. Well, previous engagement. This is the Prime Minister, of course, who got a private jet back from London, sorry, from Glasgow to London last week, didn't he, to go for dinner. It is possible to get from Northumberland back to London if you really want to. Mm. I think putting Stephen Barclay up there as the kind of government spokesperson was an attempt to try and kill this as a story as much as possible. One other thing, and it's a different story, but it's part of the same story, because this story, as with many stories, has started to grow tentacles in different directions, uh, Nigel. There was a report in the Sunday Times yesterday about kind of cash for access, or cash for honours, I should say, yeah. when it comes to the House of Lords. Uh, this idea that I think 15 of the last 16 Conservative treasurers have somehow ended up with a peerage. Each of them seem to have donated around more than £3 million each. I thought you could buy on as much more cheaply. <laughs> well, so this is the allegation, and the SNP, perhaps unsurprisingly, have now taken this to the police. Now, we don't know how, this is, how far this is going to go, but they're asking for the police to investigate this. And Pete Wishart, who's an SNP spokesperson, was uh, making that point in the Commons today. So what I've done today, Mr Speaker, I've asked the Metropolitan Police to investigate these appointments under the provisions of Section 1, Subsection 2 of the Honours Prevention of, of Abuses Act 1925. That Act states, if any person gives or agrees or pur proposes to give or offers to any person any gift, money or valuable consideration as an inducement or reward for procuring or assisting or endeavouring to procure the grant of a dignity or title of honour to any person or otherwise in connection with such a grant shall be guilty of a misdemeanour. Yeah. I have now asked the Metropolitan Police to investigate the activities of the Conservative Party and the awarding of places in the House of Lords. Uh, so there you go, that's uh, Pete Washard speaking. And I think what's interesting about this is you know, again, we're hearing the same arguments. We hear this. It comes around like a carousel about House of Lords and who gets into it. And Labour has just as much trouble. It, it is. It is. It, and, and we must say, corruption is not confined, or alleged corruption is not confined to the Conservative Party. And also, we must say that you know there is no sign that these individuals have actually done anything uh, wrong. But it raises those questions again about the House of Lords and how people end up in it. Coming back to the second jobs uh, front, or what's happened after this kind of emergency comments motion, there was no debate on it. It's not having practical impact. What is going to follow next is that the Common Standards Committee, uh, which is headed by Chris Bryant, a Labour MP, is looking into how the rules might change. We know that Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker, wants things to change. He thinks this has damaged Parliament quite a lot. And there is the argument from the Labour Party where they essentially want to end this idea of a second job for MPs, potentially in a trade-off for trying to help change the process that MPs could appeal uh, against decisions if the rules in not in favour of them. So we'll have to see what plays out there. Meanwhile, of course, the opposition will continue to try and make as much political capital yeah, as they, they can. Will. Well, I mean, MPs do have outside income, and remarkably, folks, Theresa May, the Conservative Member of Parliament for Maidenhead, she, in the last year, has earned £842,526 giving speeches. Um, interesting. My friend Donald Trump said he'd pay not to hear her speak. But, um... And she's not alone. I mean, like, you know, Andrew Mitchell, yep. £182,000 on top of his salary. Uh, to, uh, another Julian Smith, who's another Conservative, 144000 The Lib Dem leader, uh, Ed Davey, earned £60,000 as a consultant. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of MPs earning a lot of money outside of just being an MP. The question is... So the question of Will Patterson was, of course, what... 
That is not wrong. It's not against the rules. No. It's about using that. Did Patterson lobby? Use, that yes, was the question. Which he was found guilty but now, of. But it's now clearly broadened out. To a, yep. This is a much yes. bigger debate. As you say, this is about should they have any second word. And I, the public can't stand this. And yet, I was elected in 1999 to the European Parliament. Right? I was running my own company. I had six members of staff. What was I supposed to do? Fire them all. I mean, what if you're a practicing doctor? You know, there are people who have lives before politics, mm. and lives and, are, and, and, I, and if not, all we finish up with is a bunch of rich kids. Yeah. And we had plenty of those in the early 2010s, people who never needed to work, never had proper jobs. So I don't know, Darren, isn't the, perhaps the argument, isn't perhaps the argument, should you, as an MP, strike a new relationship? with a new commercial company. Maybe there's an argument there, I don't know. Yeah, it's difficult, and, and, and in many ways, what we've always claimed about politics is that we want people who have actually got outside interests, because, experience it, experience because it, it makes them more relevant. What you don't want, and this argument's slightly gone away, but it's not gone away in terms of the makeup of MPs, who literally go from either being special advisors in governments, party political at university, and then just get elected with no life experience outside, and add to that, you're right, if, if MPs, and, you know, frankly, and this is an argument the public don't like, but frankly, MPs aren't paid an enormous wage, comparable to other countries, or indeed, potentially, other jobs they could do. And you're right, you may well end up, actually, uh, with lots of wealthy people who can afford yeah. not to work to get into politics. Labour's argument, though, on second jobs is, um, and, and they wouldn't extend it to people who are GPs or whatever, it, it's mainly the consulting stuff and those outside interests. Their job is... You know, you can declare all of this, you can play within the rules, but as Owen Patterson shows, there's still a line that could be crossed. And the easiest way to prevent that is just not to have these second jobs. And that ultimately MPs should just be focused on their main job, which is being a member of yeah. Parliament, which is pretty full time. But would that come or should it come with in tandem to them earning substantially more money, which would compensate? Maybe it would. But the public. Right. You know, all the people yeah. out there, yeah. frankly, don't like that either. Well, the, but the public don't want MPs to have bigger salaries and don't want them to have outside interests. Yes. And somehow that's got to change. I've always made the point that the local GP earns more than the constituency MP. The well, local headmistress earns more. Local council leaders or, oh. or heads of quangos well, earn more than the prime minister. In fact, in most local councils, there'll be half a dozen people mm. earning more than the MP. This one will run and run. Yeah, I think so. It's really interesting, just finally on this, about how much damage it is doing to the government. Uh, they've clearly been rattled. You know, there's been big questions about Darling Street's political intent. So there's two arguments here. First of all, the public, and I think we've seen a slight change in the polls. I suspect it will... I, I wouldn't be surprised if Labour took a, at least a temporary lead, and we've got by-elections coming up, which could be a real uh, political barometer on all of that. Is it a game-changer? I'm not entirely sure it is at the moment. I don't think it's going to kind of, you know... I don't think Labour's going to take a substantial long-term lead on this issue, but it depends how much they hammer it and what more is to come. But also, I think, in some ways, even more concerning from Downing Street is the impact it's had on those backbench Conservative MPs who've had to, time and time again, walk through that lobby, time and time again, gone on TV to defend 
uh, policy or an announcement or a decision by the government, and then 24 hours later they've got custard pie on their face, or in some ways worse. Yeah, they're going to. Uh... And, and the, at some point, those MPs are going to think, well, I'm not prepared to do this again because they're also, frankly, getting an awful lot of stick from their constituents uh, for doing this. And I think that breakdown potentially in relations between Number 10 and its backbenchers, that could be the most crucial impact we could see more of what's of played out. Yeah, I agree. Darren McCaffrey, thank you very much indeed. Well, one member of Parliament who wasn't very prominent today, uh, but has been very prominent over the course of the last couple of years, is, of course, Matt Hancock. Uh, and he's been very quiet since he, since he was forced to resign, but he's reappeared today, writing an article saying it's absolutely, really vital that all NHS staff have vaccinations. They must be compulsory, and this would apply to 1.4 million staff working for the NHS, uh, even though half of them never actually meet patients. They work in offices and administration. And I just wonder whether it might have been a good thing for Matt Hancock, before writing that article, just to have a little look at the care sector, uh, because this is something that he was responsible for, and it would appear the care sector and the legislation kicks in this Thursday that it's mandatory to have the vaccine, it would appear the care sector is headed for some very real difficulties. Well, joining me is Joyce Pinfield, Vice Chairman at the National Care Association and Managing Director at Worcester Garden Limited, which operates two care homes, one in Scunthorpe and the other in Clevedon in North Somerset. Good evening, Joyce. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, Nigel. Now, the numbers that I've got, and you please correct me if you, think, if you think they're wrong, is that even before the pandemic, the sector was looking for up to 100,000 people to work in it. And now, as a result of those that work within care but do not want to have the vaccine, we could be facing something like 60,000 people who won't be legally able to work after this Thursday and perhaps the closure of up to 500 care homes. Do those numbers ring true with you? The numbers of care workers that we were still needing prior to the pandemic is well over 100,000. And the uh, mandatory vaccination went through Parliament without an impact assessment. And yes, it is now looking as if we are going to lose between 40 and 60,000 care workers due to the mandatory vaccinations. We must point out that we do believe that vaccination is definitely the way out of this pandemic. However, social care has been singled out purely for the mandatory vaccination process, even though we need more social care workers in the care sector within care homes. It would have been better if this had been delayed and then brought in to the whole of the health and social care sector all at the same time. Because during this time, we have been losing care workers from care homes to go into the NHS where they don't need the mandatory vaccinations. Yet. We do wish that Yet. everybody Yet. would get the vaccination. Yes. Yeah, I mean, after April is, is what's rumoured is, is, is when it's going to be mandatory within the National Health Service. But, Joyce, what we're up against here, and, and, and you've made the argument that you do believe in, in the vaccine, that it is the way uh, to, to deal with the, the pandemic and to end it, and I understand that, and you're encouraging people to take it, but we do have 10 to 12% of the population that just don't want it, don't trust it, 
And it's difficult to see how that's going to change, isn't it, really? It is very difficult to see how that will change, whether people aren't having it because of hesitancy, cultural reasons, or indeed misinformation. We do want to get uh, the correct information through to those people who are really worried about it because of the misinformation that they have uh, heard. So the more people who are vaccinated, the more people who are not being hospitalized because they are vaccinated, this should help with the misinformation. Because critical we are within social care and social care workers, we do need more people into the sector. We need more finances so that we can pay our carers a proper wage. At the moment, it is just dire for the job that they are doing. To lose. And we need... You're about to yes. lose between 40 and 60,000 this week. Yes, yes. So we are now getting to the point that it will be either no care or if it could be delayed, it would be care with all infection control measures being taken within care homes. Well, something's got to happen. Joyce Pinfield, thank you very much indeed for joining me. And as I say, this legislation comes into force on Thursday of this week. This is now pretty urgent. In a moment, we will talk about the race row in cricket. Yes, you've seen the Yorkshire row, which has been everywhere over the course of the last few days, and resignations, and the chairman's gone, and Headingley is now not deemed fit to hold England matches. And we're very good in this country at beating ourselves up, indeed, when some black players miss penalties uh, just after the final of the European Championship. There were some nasty things said on Twitter, and we think, oh, we're so racist and horrible in this country. Well, next, let's have a look at India. Well, should MPs be allowed to have second jobs? I have to say, I think it's very, very difficult to stop them from doing it. I worry that if we do, we'll finish up back with a bunch of rich kids running British politics. I'm not sure that's what we want. One viewer responds to that question by saying, yes, but not from lobbying. And there's a major conflict of interest. Ban it. Well, the law already does ban lobbying. Another viewer says, as long as it's declared, yes, which it has to be, we shouldn't be creating reasons for people to stay out of politics. I do rather agree with that. Bill says, we pay them 80000 a year plus expenses. Why would they need another job? Well, I don't know. Supposing they've got five kids, supposing they've got uh, disabled elderly relatives to look after. There might be all sorts of reasons. Um, and 80000 a year sounds like a lot of money to some people, but, as I say, your local GP earns more than that, your local headmaster and headmistress earn more than that. Surely an MP would be thought to be on a similar, if not slightly higher, level than that, I would suggest. Brad says, if you have another job or get paid to lobby for a company, then resign and work for that company. Well, yeah, I understand that. Lobbying, I repeat, is against the law. Sandra says, I just feel that if they weren't MPs, companies wouldn't be interested in them. In some cases, that may be true, but we've got all sorts of people in politics. Some extremely talented. Some who take very big pay cuts to go into politics. And I know that concept seems difficult to believe, but I know plenty of people who've earned far less in politics than they were earning before. I was one of them for many, many, many years. 
Now, racism in cricket. I talked before the break about the Yorkshire row, which has been convulsing us. We had a similar row after the championship finals back in July this year from the European Championships, some black players getting some abuse online. Well, let's look at real division, real anger. Uh, and joining me now from India is Chandrash Nayanan, uh, Indian cricket author and broadcaster. And let's just bring this story, Chandrash, to our audience. It's the T20 World Cup finals that are going on at the moment. And I know in India, cricket is uh, just... Uh, cricketers hold the most exalted positions. Uh, but there's been... A, India are now knocked out of the T20 World Cup. They were also beaten, comprehensively beaten, a couple of weeks ago by Pakistan. Please pick up the story from there. Uh, great to be with you, Nigel. And uh, yeah, the, there were a lot of faceless uh, trolls on social media who came up and uh, abused uh, all and sundry. And that's what happens. It's social media. Trolls are going to be there all around. And uh, we've just got to deal with it. And uh, it could be race, like you explained. It could be religion. But uh, these are faceless trolls. And uh, it would be wrong to say that uh, it's, it belongs to any particular country or religion or community. These are just trolls. Uh, and uh, the best thing would be to just ignore them. And it happened right uh, after India lost to Pakistan. And it happened even after India lost to New Zealand. So it's not just about one match. It's about two but matches. That and, uh, that's, that's the lay of the land now with social media. But, but, but the accusation was one of the bowlers was Muslim. Shami was Muslim. Uh, his figures against Pakistan weren't very good. Mind you, uh, none of the bowlers' figures against Pakistan were very good because Pakistan beat India absolutely comprehensively. But what was being said was that he'd thrown the game because, being a Muslim, his sympathies lay with Pakistan. And what we're told from news reports is that following, uh, following all of this, several Indian Muslims, a schoolteacher, engineering students, other students and staff of a Kashmiri medical college were sacked from government jobs, expelled from their colleges or even detained on charges of terrorism and sedition. So this has gone a lot further than just some online abuse, hasn't it? Uh, I think uh, uh, the law will take care of itself in the sense that, uh, that there are laws that have been applied and if it's right or wrong, the courts will take uh, cognizance of that matter. But the major aspect of the whole uh, story is uh, what you refer to is what happened with Shami. But it was not just limited to Shami. It was even uh, directed at Virat Kohli. It was directed uh, uh, at his 10-month-old uh, baby. Uh, so I, I do. I think the 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 story is not about uh, the 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 religious uh, angle that uh, that you're speaking about. It's about uh, a, a menace that is afflicting the whole world, uh, the social media, and uh, whatever's happened with the people that you're talking about is also related to social media, uh, and it's not related to the real world. In the real world, everything is uh, hunky dory, and uh, there's absolutely uh, there's no problem whatsoever. And the religion of a cricket doesn't really matter because Shami's been playing for India for about eight years yeah. and it's not only him. We've got other cricketers from other religions as well in, in the Indian team. Uh, so uh, there's never
never been any problem and uh, there's uh, captain virat kohli has come out openly sachin tendulkar india's greatest cricketer has come out openly many other great cricketers from india and around the world have come out openly in support of shami and and uh, most of the others so i think uh, uh, it, I think uh, we, should, we should just let the social media trolls not have a field day like they want to have. No, well, and Kohli did defend Shami by saying attacking someone over their religion is the most pathetic thing a human being can do. Chandresh, thank you very much indeed for joining us. And that's the lesson, folks. Don't think that things that happen in this country are somehow worse than what goes on in the rest of the world, because they most certainly aren't. Now, borders, massive issue. 2015, if you remember, uh, the people started to come across the Mediterranean. The EU put in place a policy whereby anyone that stepped onto EU soil could stay, led to a huge, huge number of people coming. But there's now another problem, and it's the Belarusian border with Poland. And Mark White, GB News' Home Affairs and Security Editor, joins me. Uh, this story is extraordinary, uh, not just because of the numbers that have started to come, but an accusation that Belarus are deliberately funneling people into Poland. And we've now got Donald Tusk, the, the chap I used to do battle with in the European Parliament, now suggesting that maybe we have sort of declare an emergency and start putting fences up. Um, what's going on? Well, it's a crisis that's been really brewing for a number of months at a lower level than it has been just in the last few days. What we're seeing now are thousands of migrants on uh, these images that you're looking at now. This is a road heading down towards the Polish border in Belarus. And take a look at that shot. It is, as you mentioned in your introduction, it's very reminiscent of that. But this is, as you say, being orchestrated by Alexander Lukashenko, the autocrat in charge of Belarus. Wow. In retaliation, the EU say for the sanctions imposed on him following his brutal crackdown after the elections of last year. Uh, in return, what he is doing, we're told, is this, that he's making it easy for people uh, not to get on the boats across the Mediterranean now, but to fly direct into his country, set up airline routes uh, from Baghdad, Erbil, uh, Suleymaniyeh, uh, other destinations in the Middle East and in Africa, telling people, apparently, that uh, you can come to Belarus on a seven-day tourist visa, you put up for a few days, and then you bust down to the border. And that's exactly what we've been Why? seeing. Why does Lukashenko want this to happen? Well, according to the European Union, and Poland, of course, and Lithuania and Latvia, because it's all three of those countries bordering Belarus, uh, these EU states uh, that are bearing the brunt of this, it's all about uh, revenge and uh, trying to destabilise the European Union in retaliation for those sanctions that are Just beginning to bite his government. Absolutely, according to that. But what you've got now, Nigel, with uh, three to 4,000 uh, heading to an area on the uh, Polish border, 2,000 there already, another couple of thousand uh, just a mile or two away expected to arrive overnight into tomorrow, and according to the Polish government, another 10,000 or so in and around uh, Belarus making their way to the Polish border as well. The Polish uh, are absolutely, the Polish authorities are absolutely determined that they're not going to get across the border. They've erected barbed wire fences. They have put 12,000 troops, uh, police and other uh, 
military-type units there to stop them going over the border. But what's been happening is that the Belarusians have been taking the, um, these migrants down, uh, pointing them at the border fence, putting them through the Belarusian border fence yeah. into this no-man's land uh, between the Belarusian border fence and the Polish border fence. Polish won't let them through. These people are stuck in this no-man's land now because the Belarusians won't let them back into their country. Thousands, and they're letting more and more people funnel in. They've got very little in the way of food and drink. It's absolutely freezing there. There have been several deaths reported already. It's a growing humanitarian crisis, but... Uh, as big, if not bigger than that, is definitely um, a, a crisis, a political crisis between Belarus and the European Union, in particular, these three EU states that border yeah. Belarus. Yeah, no, well, thank you very much indeed for that, Mark Wyden. You know, this was a big, big thing in 2015, and it had a big impact. In fact, the numbers coming into the European Union, I have no doubt, made a big, big difference to the Brexit vote, as and when it happened in 2016. So we're going to watch this very, very carefully indeed. And I want the Farage moment. The National Railway Museum will investigate steam trains for links to slavery and colonialism in a £9,000 research project. The museum in York is one of a group of organisations examining how steam power aided imperial expansion and drove sugar mills and plantations and cotton gins in industrial cities. Trains will be assessed for their role in facilitating expansion, according to experts involved in the project. Entitled Slavery, Steam, Steam Power Railways and Colonialism, and it's backed by the universities of Leeds, Sheffield and York. Isn't that marvellous? Jonathan Finch of the University of York, who's leading the project, said... The relationship between steam power and global trade is complex. Steam engines replace wind power on the plantations and water power in British cotton mills. Steamboats transported raw materials and goods around the globe. Railways were crucial to the expansion of colonial power across Asia, Africa, as well as the opening up of the North American interior. Well, there you are. There is nothing, nothing at all, not even steam engines, which many people absolutely love and indeed uh, <laughs> the flying scotsman all the rest of it no these are all symbols of colonial impression please oppression take away your enthusiasm you literally just could not make some of this stuff up in a moment i'll be talking with somebody who was at tony blair's right hand side in the most powerful years of the Labour Party in government. I'll be wondering how much of an impact he thought Keir Starmer made today. I'm on Talking Pints today with John McTernan. It's that time again. The pub is open. The GB News Arms is open. It's Talking Pints. I'm here with John McTernan. John, cheers. Welcome. Yeah, cheers. To the Thanks program. for having me on. Nice to see you. Now, you've sort of been man and boy of the Labour Party. I have been. You've done quite a lot of jobs within the Labour Party, and not just here, around the world as well, for the Labour movement. You know, when you think about it, when you were there with Tony Blair, one of the key figures, political figures in Downing Street, and he was really at the height, wasn't he, yeah. of his power, and, and, and the Tory party just couldn't respond. Didn't find a way to... Just couldn't get back in him at all, and, in fact, for a period of years... They sort of almost stopped criticising. They were mesmerised. The way the Labour Party actually was by Margaret Thatcher. I remember Tony saying to me, 
in, he realized in the 80s that the Tory party were captivated by Margaret Thatcher and that the Labour Party were mesmerized by her, but that the future was going to be after her and that he was never going to be facing her as a politician. Yeah. So he actually, he went to that open space. And I think until the Tories realized there was a space beyond uh, Tony, they couldn't, get, they couldn't get around him, couldn't get beyond him. No, they, and he, I mean, look, you know, I know Iraq and, 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 and immigration policies, and I could make many arguments about what he did wrong, but the one thing that he had was, he really did have amazing persuasive abilities. He had a view of the world. You know, I watched him in 2005 walk into the European Parliament, you know, which was pretty anti him at that time. I was there. He spoke without notes. He completely turned the chamber yeah. around. Yeah. And it was quite... I mean, he was remarkable. One of the things that he'd done well... And, yeah, the Tories were out of time and replacing Thatcher was always mm. going to be difficult. Rather like replacing Blair's quite difficult. Absolutely. I mean, it's a very similar situation. But one of the things he did well is Tory sleaze. It stuck. Yeah. You know, he attacked... I mean, the major back-to-basics campaign. That was um, an error in retrospect. You've always got a lot. Well, maybe there's an error going on right now. It feels a bit like that. And, and clearly what Johnson did last mm. week, or whether it was Johnson mm. or who it was, we'll probably never know. It's never the emperor. Well, of course. And, always. And, 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 yeah, yes. Well, someone's got to take I mean, you know, somebody else hangs. I mean, that's the way it works. Starmer today was actually quite good, I thought. Yeah. But does he have... Has he got what Blair had? Are we going to see a Labour Party resurge, mm. in your view? So, I think if Tony was around today as leader, he wouldn't be like Tony was in 1997. You have to fashion the answer for the times you're in. So, I think one of the things which um, Keir's got, which is difficult with this party, is not the left, the left got beaten. What's difficult with the party uh, is the people who hanker for European Union citizenship. They don't feel they've been beaten. And Keir really has to, Keir really has to ram home Brexit's done. We're not going back. It's interesting you raise this because I remember as leader of UKIP mm. and I was going around the country and picking up support mm. and little piece by little piece but building, you know, what became a pretty impressive campaigning movement. And I remember you know, sort of 2012, 2013, 2014, I would tell everyone that would listen, but no-one believed me, we're doing Labour more damage than we are the Conservatives. Absolutely. We were, like the, we were like the conscience, in a sense, of many in the Conservative Party. You were a gateway drug to the Tory party and for they'd our vote, voters. And they'd vote for me in European elections. Yeah. But then they were but available. In, but in 2015, there would not have been a Conservative majority oh, without the UKIP vote. We hammered Labour in the Midlands, the yep. North, South Wales. Same places. Yeah, and, and you're, I mean, the gateway drug, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the Red Wall, they'd all voted for me before they voted for Boris Johnson in 2019. But, but so it's really interesting, because I saw this, you mm. know, I saw patriotic old Labour, mm. um, and they felt the open door to Eastern Europe had damaged living standards. And they were very aggrieved. They also saw a Labour Party that was metropolitan, John, they, out of touch. They saw, they saw Jeremy Corbyn, and he was offered twice. And they kind of went, when, when the landslide came, that was the voters just going, do you know what? How can we get this across to you? Mm. He's not the right leader for mm. a Labour Party for the country. You said patriotic voters. Yeah. Jeremy Corbyn is an internationalist rather than <laughs> yeah, yeah, he doesn't like the national anthem or anything like that. He though. doesn't like the national anthem, doesn't like the British Army, doesn't like, doesn't like armed forces being used anywhere. Or, yes. I think... Ooh, 
we should have been faster to respond to the referendum by simply saying, in 2017, Theresa May said, hard Brexit, give me a big majority. The voters went, hold on a second. That was when Labour could have gone, do you know what? We heard the voters. They said, mm, yes, to yes, yes to Brexit, but no to hard Brexit. And Labour could have camped in that space and said, we'll make Brexit work. And that's where Keir is wrenching the party to. And I think, you know, it's like, you have to, we have to say, Boris said he'd get Brexit done, he did. Um, thing is, he can't make it work. So it's Brexit on, from Boris's side and fix it from our side. OK, now, what if, if that's where Starmer is? And, and, I think and, that's and, where, and yeah, they, if the party reunites, in yeah, a sense, yeah. around that. But the other issue, John, that really interests me, oh. and, and this is a parallel with America, mm. is... You know, the left have been resurgent within mm. the Labour Party. Yeah. They haven't gone away. They're still there. And by the way, as a former Blairite, how did you join Momentum? I don't quite work that out. The, it's a bit like what you said about um, being leader of UKIP. Yeah. You have to follow where the energy is. There was a period when the energy mm. in the Labour Party was on the left. And some people look at that. They look at the energy and policies. They go, I don't want to be near that. I don't want to understand it. I thought there are so many young people who are so interested in politics. And you go and talk to them, and what do they say? They say, basically, John, older politicians like you keep telling us why we can't make the world better. And they weren't accepting it. And I thought, I have got two choices. I can be the old guy who always goes, you can't do it. Mm -hmm. Or I can be somebody who goes, let's find out what's driving, what's driving the energy. And there's still, there's a bunch of voices on the left who, I don't agree with what they want to do. I agree they found the problem. They're saying there is a problem about right. autonomy at work, agency at work, about precarious lifestyle. About, and uh, so you have to so go... Your, so that was your reasoning? It's my yeah, engaging. Because here's the next problem for the left. Yeah. And it's a problem for the left in America, and it's a problem for the left in this country mm -hmm. too. And it is. The new left that we've got, or the resurgent left we've got here... <coughs> And then in America, mm. this kind of the Democrats, mm -hmm. this, this new caucus developing within mm -hmm. the Democrats and AOC perhaps being the most prominent face of it. And they basically think that everything America's ever stood for is dreadful. <clears throat> and the founding fathers were the most <laughs> awful, brutal, dreadful mm -hmm. people. And that kids at school should be taught the shame of being American. Um, and that the wars everybody got involved in were just sort of examples of colonialism. Um, and you've got that going on yep. within the Democrats, just as with cancel culture, the woke mob, uh, and deep within the education system on both sides of the pond. And what's really interesting to me is you say to a lot of traditional left voters in both sides of, of the Atlantic, they should be ashamed of their past, and they say, do you know what? You know, our grandfather flew in Lancasters, or our granny worked in a factory in the war. We're not ashamed of the past. We're blooming proud of the past mm. and, what our, and, and, and the part that our family played in it. Again, Brexit brought out those feelings, and I, and I just wonder whether the Biden administration isn't in trouble on this, and Labour could be too. Look, I, I understand the point you're making, and there, is, there are people on all sides in politics who want to tell other people how to live their lives better. Mm -hmm. That puritanical strain in politics, eat your greens. Yeah. Um, one of the greatest strengths... Get your booster jab. <laughs> one of the great strengths of Boris Johnson is he's never, ever told anybody else how to live their life. 
And that's a liberal. Good job. Yeah, yeah. It's, a libera it's a liberation for, for many people to realize a politician is not going to lecture them. So there's a puritanical strain as well, uh, in, uh, on the left particularly. But I think everybody who goes into government has, has a sense, oh, I'm going to tell you how to live your life. And I think the, I think the answer is more complicated. Uh, I think that there, there has definitely been a change um, since the Black Lives Matter mo movement. Definitely a change in the way that people talk and think about race. You look at what's going on in uh, Yorkshire cricket. You look at what's going on uh, in, in, fo in football clubs and football fans. There is more concern about racism. And I think Priti Patel found the edges of this from a different, different way when she tried to get involved in saying, you know, you, could, you can boo the England team patriotically. And I think the issue is, like one in ten relationships in Britain, adult relationships are mixed-race relationships. We've got a very diverse population. It's a very diverse population, but lots of people have got black and Asian members in their family. But that's no reason to tell your kids that, that, that we're a terrible country. No, 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 but I think, the, I think I'm, I'm trying to say there's a complexity about this, which is that there are issues around race and racism where what was acceptable in the 70s uh, isn't acceptable now, and the language used sure, uh, in Yorkshire Cricket Club. And that, I think, is where... Political leadership is required where people don't come into people's houses and tell them how to live with other people, but nor do they stand back, as Priti Patel tried to stand back off. You know, if it looks, if you boo the England team, who are mixed race, majority mixed race, who are taking the knee, if you boo them, it's not a protest, it's not free speech, it's simply, it, it is impolite at the least racist at the moment. I think taking the knees but, but many think, of us so think, I think, I think but John, many of us think taking the knees impolite because it's so linked with that Marxist organization Black Lives Matter. Well Black so Black Black Lives Matter is the uh, the only time I broke lockdown was to go to the Black Lives Matter demonstration. Uh, in Westminster. What, to bring down Western capitalism and defund the police? Uh, no, but I do think... Well, that's that, what I, they stand for. That's not what they stand for. Black Lives Matter Read the stands website. for... Black Lives Matter stands, stands for what it says it stands for. Black Lives Matter. And there Tony has Blair, been, there Tony been, Blair, your former boss. Your former boss, and he was absolutely right on this, Blair said, defund the police is the dumbest slogan the left have ever come up with. Look, however, 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 No, no, I, however... however um, Cressida Dick then, f then, then, then made the best ever demonstration why you might want to consider defunding the police by sending the cops in uh, to the Sarah Everard uh, demonstration in, in Clapham Common. Actually, a second time I broke the lockdown was to go to, to attend that demonstration. I think, I, I think the, police are not, the police are not beyond criticism, and they themselves know they need a massive cultural no, but change. A big, big, and, yeah. and, and the yeah, argument, John, I'm making is not about a fair society. Uh, uh, it's not about... I, I, you know, it, I, I just think that symbol of taking... The, taking the knees synonymous yeah. with the Organization, and that's been my problem with it. Yeah, no, no, I, but I, I disagree with you on that one. I mean, obviously, I, I, I attended the demonstration, so I'm, um, yeah. uh, it's, it's, it's important to me, important to my family that we did that. And Starmer, of course, takes the knee. Can Starmer be the next Prime Minister, or is an 80-seat majority? Is, is it just too big? 80-seat is, is, yes, in Everest. Yeah. However, politics is very volatile at the moment. Look at, um, you know... Uh, we've had two referendums, Scotland and Brexit, we've had, which, were, which went in different ways. We've had um, a, 20, you know, a, a, a coalition government, then a slim majority, then no majority, then a landslide. It feels to me votes are in movement, but you have to, if you're as beaten as badly as Labour are, you have to earn every single vote back, and you have to make sure that people understand 
We don't think that Labour voters aren't patriotic. We don't think that people who used to vote for us don't have any place in the Labour Party. We do have to uh, offer them something. I've always thought the way to unite all the wings of the Labour Party is if you offered uh, homes for today's young people, decent pensions for today's workers when they retire, and decent health and social care for older people, you could unite almost all families in all parts of the country around that. But you have to get the right to be heard. And the difficulty for Keir has, he, he's had the whole of the lockdown. It's been very hard to be heard when you've got to, you can't meet people. And at the same time, you also can't actually be that critical of the government. Luckily, the government's creating some space yep. in which well, it's I think possible right. to criticise no, it. I think that's, and that's right. And that's, and they, this, this may be a thing that cuts through. It's hard to believe, isn't it? I know. But, you know, it feels like the Johnson administration has been, been around for a decade. Well, I think one of the ways to think about the, the current politics is you've got a Johnson government trying to say, we're a first-term Johnson government and we'd yeah. like a second term when they're fourth-term Tory government looking yeah. for a fifth term. And I, I was racking my brains when I was waiting in the green room. I can't remember a time any party got five in a row. No. So I think that's a big stretch for them, but it's a big stretch for Labour yeah. as well. No, and, absolutely. And if you're in too long, you lose connections. Um, even Margaret Thatcher, with a great connection to the British public, lost her ear for it and brought, brought in the poll tax. Yes. Well, that was one thing your former boss did do. He got out very well. <laughs> yeah. Head, and thank you for joining us here on Talking Pines. Right, we've got a few seconds left. We're going to finish up with some questions. The Barrage, the Farage questions. And Christopher asks me, do you have a favourite European beer? No, I like English bitter, a live yeast product. Of course, some of the Belgian beers are great, but I think we do have wonderful beer when it's served right. Elizabeth asks, if you could choose anyone to be PM, who would it be? Oh, I don't know. Let's give Boris a chance, shall we? That's what I thought in 2019. Not so sure I was right now. I'm really not. I don't know. I just... It's back to the earlier debate, you know, about, about outside income and experience of life. I just want people in charge who've been used to making difficult decisions at some other point in their lives. That's what really matters to me. Time for one more, perhaps. Ian asks, how do you think the EU will react if we trigger Article 16? Badly, I think, is the answer to that. At some point, uh, we're going to have to act. Uh, all the thinking was that Brexit would lead to tensions in the nationalist community. It hasn't. It's leading to tensions within the unionist community. We had a couple of buses set fire to him last week. It's not made big news, but there are rumblings. Something with that relationship needs to change. Pity Boris wasn't a bit more honest with us about the Northern Irish Protocol. But, hey...